Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, a Radio Free Europe podcast on developments in Russia, its war against Ukraine, and its relations with the rest of the world. I'm Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL and author of The Week in Russia newsletter. This week's podcast is about the state of the war in Ukraine, what's happening more than 20 months into Russia's full-scale invasion, and about the fate and future of Western support for Kyiv amid shifting developments in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East and elsewhere. And my guest today on The Week Ahead in Russia is Sam Green, a professor at the Russia Institute at King's College London, director of Democratic Resilience at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and co-author of the book Putin Versus the People. Thanks very much for joining me, Sam. Well, thank you for the opportunity. All right. It's great to have you on the podcast again. Now, the first thing uh, I want to ask about is the state of Western support for Ukraine. Um, A lot of things have happened this month uh, that have already affected or could substantially affect, I think, uh, levels of support um, in general and specifically financial and military aid for Kiev um, from the United States and Europe and other countries and regions as well. Today is October 30th. On September 30th, the U.S. Congress averted a shutdown of the government by passing a stopgap spending bill. But in doing so, lawmakers removed a $6 billion in funding for Ukraine, leaving the fate of further U.S. aid to Ukraine unclear. And it's still unclear today. Uh, while funding for Ukraine was dropped uh, in, that, uh, in that bill, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican who was Speaker of the House of Representatives, had been widely expected to propose a separate measure on aid to, uh, aid to Ukraine, and President Joe Biden was urging him to do this quickly. But McCarthy was ousted from the Speaker's post on October 3rd, adding to the uncertainty, and the hard-right Republicans who led the effort to unseat him are opposed to additional aid to Ukraine. Uh, now, four days after that, On October 7th, something much more momentous happened. Um, Hamas attacked Israel, igniting a new war in the Middle East that has uh, diverted attention from Russia's war against Ukraine, particularly, I I think, in the United States, perhaps because of its close ties with Israel, uh, but also affecting the way the war in Ukraine is viewed around the world. Now, the the effect on on the fate of U.S. funding for Ukraine uh, is not yet clear. Possibly um, uh, this could actually speed up approval, potentially, as the White House uh, has proposed bundling funding for Ukraine and Israel together in a single package with with, uh, funding for a few other things. However, uh, last week, after three other U.S. lawmakers who sought the speaker post failed to get enough votes, a new speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives was elected, and he says he'll seek aid for Israel first. I should also mention uh, Slovakia, where an election that was held on September 30th also has resulted uh, in the return to power of a prime minister who, like Viktor Orban in neighboring Hungary, is sympathetic to Russia and essentially opposes aid to Ukraine. Sam, are, uh, you're in the United States uh, and you've written about the process uh, of the election of a new House speaker uh, after McCarthy's unprecedented ouster. 
but of course, you've been watching developments in the Middle East and Europe uh, and elsewhere as well. What, what do you make of all this in terms of Western support uh, for Ukraine? Is it in serious jeopardy? Uh, well, look, uh, first of all, I think we need to take a couple steps back and, and separate out some processes here. Um, and there's a long-term story and there's a short-term story, um, neither of which are terribly you know, great, but neither of which are probably catastrophic either. Um, the long-term story right, and a long-term reality is that there have been some serious challenges uh, emerging to uh, support for Ukraine uh, over a number of, of, of months. We've seen this coming from a distance. Uh, in some cases, uh, you know, we work to try to um, ameliorate that. But the biggest challenge that you put your finger on really is, uh, you know, the um, growing reluctance to support Ukraine among um, some in the U.S. political establishment, particularly in parts of the uh, Republican Party. And if you do, you know, the, the, the vote counting, you go through both the House and the Senate, you will continue to find that a majority of Republicans, uh, or at least a sufficient number of Republicans joining together with Democrats, are there to you know, support Ukraine. But the reality is we've seen with the ouster of McCarthy uh, and with the difficulties that the House has had in, in selecting a replacement for the Speaker, uh, is that those who are adamantly opposed to uh, supporting Ukraine um, are in a structurally powerful position. Despite their relatively small numbers, they are in uh, a position to shut down the uh, the House of Representatives as such, perhaps to shut down the, uh, the U.S. government as, as such. Uh, and they are willing to make support for Ukraine, uh, you know, one of the hills on which they're willing to uh, uh, to die. Now, I think there's a bigger question about, you know, to what extent is that ideological? Uh, why are they doing that? I think for the most part, it's it's... A political calculation, and a fairly cynical one at that. Uh, this is an, a, a, a line that they believe that they can attack uh, President Biden on going into the 2024 elections. It's one that they are already beginning to, uh, to campaign on. It's one, uh, you know, where they see a certain softness, particularly among Republican voters, but not only. Um, and, you know, there I think some of the blame actually does need to shift to the administration uh, at self. Uh, the, um, the president on 19th of October gave an Oval Office uh, address in which he, he talked about both uh, Ukraine and Israel uh, uh, together. He talked about the threats posed to the world that the U.S. would like to live in and thus to U.S. national security and national interests posed by um, uh, aggressive actors, whether that be Vladimir Putin or whether that be Hamas. Uh, and he really began to make the case to the American people about the national security imperative of supporting Ukraine in a way that he really hadn't done uh, since the beginning of the war. Most of what Biden has said to the American public up until the 19th of October was really about the moral and the emotional case for supporting Ukrainians, either democracies versus autocracies, standing up for victims and standing up against bullies and that kind of thing. And while that's important, uh, I think that the, the, the conclusion that the White House has come to is that if, if the Republicans are going to campaign against Ukraine, if they're going to make this an electoral issue, uh, then uh, it really is important to hold up the other side of, of the argument. So we will see what kind of uh, impact that has. Um, we have probably, you know, on the, the short-term front in the U.S., dodged a little bit of a bullet uh, with the election of, of Mike Johnson. It might not feel that way uh, to a lot of people, but his stance on Ukraine does strike me as somewhat softer than, say, Jim Jordan's stance, and there was a very real chance that he would become uh, speaker. Uh, Johnson has said that, you know, supporting Ukraine is something they would all like to do, but they want there to be oversight. The Ukrainians, incidentally, get perfectly happy for, for there to be 
oversight. Uh, they're fairly confident about the way in which uh, American uh, aid and, and, and money has been spent and managed uh, in Ukraine, and, and for good reason. In fact, there has been oversight really from from the very beginning. Uh, and uh, so I think that you know, the likelihood is that some aid will come through, whether Republicans will be minded to give the administration everything that it's asked for. And that's about $60 billion out of $105 billion supplemental package that the White House has put to Congress uh, is, uh, is an open question. It's a political question. Obviously, you know, for Ukraine and for those you know who who care about Ukraine, the the best thing to do would be to get as much money as possible and and to get it for you know a funding period that is as long as possible. The White House has asked for funding out through September, twenty twenty four, and that I think you know is um, is is good news. Again, they're being ambitious, but we'll have to wait and see uh, what actually comes out of the political um, process. Uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, I think the news is, you know, again, you pointed to the elections in Slovakia, which are uh, unpleasant for a lot of people, not least for, for people in uh, uh, in Slovakia. Um, but the reality uh, is that, uh, you know, the, the, the national security conversation, the hard security conversation around Ukraine is in a lot of ways and has been for a long time more robust in Europe than it has been in the United States, we've seen, in fact, uh, European Union members uh, and, and, and European countries as a whole begin to spend more money, including on military aid for Ukraine, than the United States has spent in recent months. Uh, and uh, really rallying uh, to that cause as they've seen the difficulties that uh, the U.S. has had in, uh, in, in uh, coming up with uh, further commitments to to Ukraine, and we see that reflected to a certain extent in uh, the Polish elections, which uh, which you, you you didn't mention, but which did bring to power um, a, a center left coalition uh, that you know both sides of, of the political spectrum in Ukraine have been committed to resisting Russia. Uh, sorry, in Poland have been committed to resisting Russia and supporting uh, Ukraine. Um, but this brings to power a government that is is much more likely to have friendly relations with Brussels, to have friendly relations with uh, with uh, Berlin uh, and with other teams. Uh, both NATO and EU member capitals, uh, which is going to leave uh, Robert Fico in uh, in Bratislava and Viktor Orban in Budapest much more isolated than they otherwise uh, would have been. All right. Thanks very much for that, Sam. Um, yes, I guess as a as a cynical journalist, I, I mentioned sort of the the negative uh, development, at least in terms of support for Ukraine from the West, uh, but not the the more positive development of, of the Polish elections. So thanks for that. And also for um, pointing out uh, your point about uh, Mike Johnson, the new speaker, and, and you know, his, his remarks or his stance on Ukraine. You know, I think, yeah, I think the consensus was that Jim Jordan, um, you know, would be a, a worse uh, kind of a... The, the, Worst case scenario, um, just speaking of what what I've what I've read from and heard from analysts, um, uh, and and as you pointed out, Johnson did say, you know, we all want to su- support Ukraine, but we're going to look at, uh, you know, want accountability and look at the details. Um, I just wanted to follow up on one of your points and ask, you know, you mentioned uh, Biden's Oval Office speech in which he started, I think you said he started to make the case you know, for a kind of a national security a case for for robust support to Ukraine. Um, now, is that, I mean, do you think it's crucial or do you think he needs to sort of continue making the case to step it up or um, or is that potentially dangerous in terms of with, with the election coming up? 
Um, you know, I think the White House has been clearly reticent to um, have Biden be the face of this uh, conflict and really to make this as a, as a, a, a national security, national interest case to the United States. It, you know, it does take some some thinking and explaining uh, to uh, to bring it home uh, to some of the American public, at least, you know, exactly why this is uh, in uh, in America's interest, in the interest of America's alliances and relationships, and, and, and why really the world that would emerge if Russia is allowed to, to be big victorious in, in, in this war is a world in which we don't really want to live. Um, but um, you know that was that was a political calculation. Uh, you know, I think partly it, maybe to avoid partisanship, they wanted to see if they could leave this as uh, you know a, a conflict, a, a war, essentially that that, that people on, on both sides of the aisle were were willing to uh, uh, to support. But I think that policy has probably run its uh, its course, and so we are seeing, and hopefully, will continue to see. Um, uh, the president being more front and center. Really, there is nobody, regardless of your partisan you know, position, there is nobody uh, in the U.S. political system, regardless of who the personalities of the parties are, who can make the national security case to the American public the way the president can. That is one thing you know, really uh, to which Americans do look uh, uh, to their president. Uh, and, uh, and I think that we can and, and hopefully you know, uh, will see the president uh, be much more uh, uh, forthright, uh, much more present uh, uh, on this uh, you know, uh, uh, issue going forward. Uh, you know, the reality, of course, is that uh, you know, U.S. presidential elections are not usually won and lost on, on foreign policy. Uh, and so I, I don't think we should expect Biden to see this, you know, you know, to, to make this his, his core campaign issue. Uh, but you know, there are things going on other than uh, other than elections. The White House certainly recognizes that, and I would expect them to um, uh, to, to come up with more opportunities uh, for Biden to make this case to the American public going forward. All right, thanks very much, Sam. Now, uh, my second question is connected to the first. Um, uh, it's about the war itself, the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's war war on Ukraine. Um, kind of an effort to take stock now, a little over 20 months since Russia launched its full-scale invasion on February 24th, 2022. Uh, it's also been almost five months since Ukraine began a major counteroffensive in early June. Uh, and Ukrainian forces have made gains, uh, but so far they've been unable to achieve at least one of the main goals, uh, which is to break Russia's hold on a corridor of land stretching along the Azov Sea coast from the Russian border to the isthmus uh, that leads to Russian-occupied Crimea. Uh, and as before, um, it, it seems like there's no end in sight to, to the war, at least none that I can see happening uh, before, say, the presidential elections next year in Russia in March. Um, and in the United States in November. And, and um, you know, we've been doing reporting on this, and it, the Russian budget that's coming up um, is is now going to be unprecedentedly, sorry, uh, unprecedented, uh, in, include unprecedented amounts of money for military development, um, military yep. def defense industry. So um, uh Maybe this question is overly broad, but what's your assessment, I guess, of the state of the war and what will you be watching for in the coming weeks and months? Um, and I guess the, another question, how much of an effect is the fate of the Western support for Kiev likely to have? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think that really is the, the, the key question. Um, look, I'm not a military analyst. I'm not going to pretend to be a military analyst, so I'm going to do what most of the rest of us have been doing since this war began, which is, you know, reading everything that Mike Kaufman, Rob Lee, and others have to say very, very carefully following the trackers from the IWS and that, that, that kind of thing. So ISW and that kind of thing, right? So, you know, it, it is... Um, uh, it, it remains, uh, I think, a fluid situation, even if uh, the actual front lines uh, have not been um, uh, moving very much. Right? I think we can allow ourselves to believe that because this looks and feels like a war of attrition, that, that there's not all that much that's actually happening on the on the front lines. And the reality is that you know there is uh, there are people being killed on a daily basis, and there there, there is stuff being destroyed on a daily basis. There is. Um, um, uh, there, there are tests being put to both sides militarily uh, on uh, on a daily basis, and over time, that that may accumulate and may lead to to unexpected uh, developments. But I'm not in the business of predicting what those developments might uh, might be. Uh, again, for me, I think it's it's a slightly longer term, mid to longer term story that is of. Uh, uh, interest, um, because that's the story I think that's going to determine where this war uh, goes. There's very little evidence that anybody's going to win an outright near-term victory on the battlefield anywhere in Ukraine that will be decisive and that will lead either side to stop fighting. Both capitals have clearly concluded, at least for the time being, that uh, there is more to be gained uh, on the battlefield uh, and that the risks of stopping fighting uh, for their geostrategic and, and, and national interests are um, are are too great, right? And so this war uh, will continue. Both sides are geared up uh, for that war uh, to continue. You mentioned that uh, you know the Russians have been able to and continue to mobilize uh, their economy as a wartime economy. They've stepped up production. We also see arms coming in from North Korea. We expect to see more arms coming in from Iran, although Iran at uh, the moment obviously has other issues that, that it will be trying to deal with uh, as well uh, closer to home. Um, but, uh, you know, the Russians will keep putting material uh, on the front line, even at increasing cost, uh, and they will keep putting men uh, on the front line, although, although there the limitations might be greater. I think the indication is that the Kremlin is unlikely to seek uh, a massive new call-up of soldiers um, any time before the presidential elections next March, and I would be skeptical that they would want to do that uh, even <clears throat> even after then. Um on the Western side, I think you know we are seeing um, the delivery of, of attackums, right, which are now already on the battlefield. We are seeing movements in the directions of other weapon systems, including F-16s. We are seeing um, you know continued efforts to ramp up defense industrial production uh, of all of the things that Ukraine needs to continue fighting, including some things that that uh, you know, Ukraine does not. Uh, have yet, right? And so we are seeing very clearly that um, Ukraine and its Western supporters are gearing up, not simply for you know the end of of this current uh, offensive, whatever direction that might take, but for the offensive after that, and the offensive after that, and for defenses against whatever um, uh, campaigns uh, the Russians might decide uh, to mount for for further territorial gain from from their perspective. Right. Um, so the you know, it, it, as sort of sick as we all are to a certain extent of, of the phrase that, you know, we're in this for as long as it takes, I think that one of the things that Ukraine and the West really want to do is to communicate to Putin that, you know, if he is waiting for the West to lose its nerve, to lose interest, uh, to lose its ability to continue supporting Ukraine, it's going to be waiting for a very long time. 
um, that you know is not a happy picture to a certain extent because it means that uh, you know that, that we are going to be locked in this conflict potentially for years to come. It's going to cost lives. And at the end of the day, it will be up to the Ukrainians to decide um, you know how and for how long uh, and with what sorts of losses they do want to continue fighting. Uh, but I think it is important that uh, you know every indication we're seeing, despite the difficulties we were just talking about on Capitol Hill, is that uh, the West will be there to support uh, uh, the Ukrainians uh, for, again, as long as the Ukrainians are, are, are willing and interested to fight. All right. Thank you, Sam. Um, I'm just going to apologies for asking another question that's uh, related to kind of the military uh, developments on the ground. Um, but that's a great overview. But uh, I just wanted to ask about the the Ukrainian counteroffensive, you know, that started in in June, um, you know, has made some progress, um, and maybe you've already answered this um, by indicating, uh, you know, how how far ahead um, uh, both sides may be looking. Um, but uh, you know, I, do you have any sense of how important? You know, there's been so much of a focus uh, on the on the Ukrainian counteroffensive, and now there's sort of a Russian counter counteroffensive, at least in the east. Um, any sense of sort of how important, I guess, success or failure of this uh, counteroffensive is? Well, look, it would have been wonderful, right? Obviously, if the Ukrainians had succeeded in driving uh, to the sea and splitting the uh, the Russian territories in, into two and making it much more difficult for Russia to operate. You know, I think, again, you talk to the military analysts and the people who look at this much more deeply and with much more expertise than I do, and I think there were very few people who actually believed that was likely to happen. Um, you know, to the extent that the, the White House and the Pentagon were briefing people on Capitol Hill, they would have been getting uh, the same uh, message. The administration did not really expect that. Uh, to happen either, which is why, you know, really from the beginning of this offensive, again, people have been gearing up, you know, for the next offensive and for the offensive uh, after that. So, uh, you know, I, I, well, it's, you know, we, we might make in, sort of in the public space and the public conversation in the news media to a certain extent a lot out of the, the success or failure of this um, uh, offensive. I'm not inclined to, uh, you know, exaggerate its, uh, its importance either for the course of the war uh, or for the uh, the level of, of Western support uh, for the war. All right. Uh, thanks very much. Um, thanks very much, Sam. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, thanks a lot for the kind of broad but also detailed, I think, assessment of what's going on both in terms of of, of the war on the ground and, and uh, Western support. Uh, so uh, thank you again for, for joining me, Sam. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All right. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Sam Green, a professor at the Russia Institute, King's College, London, Director of Democratic Resilience at the Center for European Policy Analysis, or SIPA, and co-author of the book Putin versus the People. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. This has been The Week Ahead in Russia. Our theme music is Nyestrelyai, or Don't Shoot a song from the early 1980s by Yuri Shevchuk and DDT. Please be sure to check out my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which covers the latest developments in Russian politics and society, as well as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Subscribe by visiting www.rferl.org.